0: it destroys the economic development potential in the area. People will leave, businesses will leave, and eventually the revenue and income base of that community will just demolish, just because they don't have access to the drinking
1: water. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. and Vernice Miller Travis.
2: Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. If you would like to learn more about Infinite Earth Radio or the topics discussed on today's show, go to our website, infiniteearthradio.com, and you will find show notes for today's show as well as links to all of our episodes. So let's get right to today's show.
3: So in light of the national attention on the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, we're doing a short series of podcasts looking at the water infrastructure and water quality issues facing communities across the country. Our topic today is Water Infrastructure in Rural Communities. Hope Cupid is President and CEO of Southeast Rural Community Assistance Project, and she's joined by her colleague, Andy Crocker, Virginia State Manager for Regional Programs. SERGAP's mission is to improve the quality of life for low-income individuals by promoting affordable water and wastewater facilities, community development, environmental health, and economic self-sufficiency. SIRCAP has brought clean water and wastewater facilities to more than 450,000 residents in Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. So let's get started with our first question. The water crisis in Flint, Michigan gathered a lot of media coverage and outrage, but the situation in Flint is not that rare in the United States. Can you share, Hope and Andy, your sense of the scope of the problem? How many Americans lack access to safe drinking water?
0: Hello, this is Hope. I'll, I'll start and then Andy can fill in. It is estimated that 1.6 million people in the United States do not have access to water. And that cost is $1 trillion over the next 20 years just to fix it. And the estimated cost in that industry, the capital investments by water industry is $23 billion per year below what should be spent to meet the water quality needs in this country
4: don't really have a whole lot to add other than to maybe clarify that a trillion dollar figure is for infrastructure needs for the entire nation, not just to the people who currently do not have access to water and wastewater.
2: Right. So in addition to the folks, I think you quoted 1.6 million folks who don't have access to drinking water, but that doesn't take into account folks who may have access to drinking water that is below standard. Is that accurate?
0: That's accurate. That's right.
4: Okay. And many of those Folks who don't meet standards are in very small systems. The vast majority of compliance related issues, as reported to EPA through state primacy agencies, come from very small utilities.
2: Gotcha. This is lack of water and wastewater infrastructure. You've mentioned rural communities, but is it disproportionately located in other geographic ways, or are certain populations more likely to be impacted?
0: I can speak to that and then Andy could add. We have situations in some of our states where that we serve that you have unincorporated communities and those unincorporated communities do not have access to public drinking water and their water quality and water supply may be inadequate, whereas the water that they're pulling from the tap is either brown or discolored. And that's just based on the fact that they're not getting the good water that should come from the public water supply. So those communities are impacted and affected and we went to visit those folks in Delaware and we're trying to get them access to the public water supply. So usually we find that it's low-income, typically minority communities that are mostly impacted.
4: I think Hope really covered that well. I mean, you can find pockets everywhere, I mean who would have thought in Virginia, that we have so many people who still don't have water. There's approximately 15,000 residences in Virginia alone that don't have access to public drinking water. So there are lots of issues that cause that. You find them in, as Hope said, rural and unincorporated areas, but areas where utilities are trying to expand, but they just don't have the customer base to make it economically feasible. So if they are able to run water or wastewater, out to serve, say a few homes in a certain area. Economically, it's just not sustainable. So if they are able to undertake the project, somehow maybe get granted in order to physically make the project happen, it typically isn't sustainable because you have too few people paying to keep the services going.
3: If I could jump in for a second, but what about the circumstance where you have Rural communities who for decades have been trying to get water and wastewater infrastructure and still somehow cannot get on the radar screen for that to happen. But yet when new subdivisions and or country clubs or recreational facilities are built nearby, they don't seem to have any problem getting water infrastructure to those new subdivisions and developments or recreational facilities, golf courses and the like. How do they justify being able to make the investments for new development, but not for long-term existing distressed communities
0: the one thing that in my experience is that we often hear this is what we hear a lot of times at a lot of the board meetings is that those folks won't pay for the water we cannot extend water lines to them because they will not pay the water bills so why should we extend the lines to them we're gonna end up not having the water bills be paid for by the folks that we need to extend it to so that's one excuse that I hear why they won't do that. However, when you have the new development and the new golf courses and the new country clubs, they feel as though those folks will pay and will support the water system.
4: That is true both from a bias standpoint, you know, the perception that the payment won't be there, but there's also a realistic component to that. And not necessarily from all distressed communities, but for example, there might be only a certain portion of people within the community that really want the water service or wastewater service and are willing to pay for it and others are not because hookup fees perhaps are prohibitive whereas in a new development those costs are kind of built into the building lots and selling of the homes and all that kind of thing it sort of all gets rolled up into the developmental costs whereas these distressed communities already are typically lower income, not always and so, It's a real hurdle for them to be able to come up with the money to tie on to the utility in order to receive the services that they so
0: desperately need. Mm -hmm. A lot of the communities that we serve, even if they have the new development and the local government or locality puts the water line in the community, they still won't hook up and mostly because they don't want to pay the water bills. The water bills may be too expensive for them and they want to keep their own water systems. We have the community in Suffolk, Virginia, called Hobson Village, where there was a, a huge residential development going up with million-dollar homes right behind their property. And the city did run water lines throughout the entire community, but those folks did not want to hook up. The We worked with the Office of Drinking Water and the Health Department through an environmental justice grant to resolve the problem. What they really wanted us to do was to have them hook up to the water system, but however, we just helped the end solution was we upgraded their infrastructure so that they can keep their own drinking water. So that was the solution that we came up with for that community. So you're right, when they were there, no development was done, but when the new golf course and the new homes were built, that's when the infrastructure came, but they still didn't want to have access to it.
2: So can you share with our listeners what the implications are for these rural communities and families that don't have access to clean water and wastewater facilities? What are the health and economic implications for them?
0: In our discussion, we saw that mostly if they, the health risks are that the children may have health and development risk due to lack of having access to clean drinking water. It also, the other risk is that it destroys the economic development potential in the area. People will leave, businesses will leave, and eventually the revenue and income base of that community would just demolish just because they don't have access to the drinking water.
4: It's a vicious cycle. It just continues to feed itself. More people leave because of loss of jobs and economic opportunity. And again, a greater burden is placed for paying for the system on the existing customers that stayed in that community. And it just creates a situation, like Hope said, that's ultimately kind of destructive. And communities then are left with really little choice about what their options are to move forward. And a lot of times regionalization may be on the table, but they still don't want to surrender their autonomy. So it's not an easy decision. People typically plan for the best of times and not necessarily look at what may happen if certain event takes place, for example, an industry moving out or one of the main employers in an area, that kind of thing.
3: Tell us about the work of the Southeast Rural Community Assistance Project. What have you been doing to address this problem of an inequity in access to water infrastructure?
4: Well, education is a really key component, obviously. And we work pretty closely with, for example, the Office of Drinking Waters Division of Capacity Development, which helps us identify at-risk water systems and communities that need that assistance. So even though people, for example, who serve as board members and council members and things in towns and water utilities, they're well-intentioned and they're probably very good at what they do in their everyday jobs, but most of them really don't understand what it takes to run a utility. And so they don't know what questions to ask even sometimes. And that limits their ability to reach out and to be able to improve their lot. They most Unfortunately, most managers feel like they're good managers because they don't spend money, for example, instead of understanding that things like full-cost rate setting will actually help them in the long run be able to address issues not just for their current customers but also provides them a plan to move forward and extend service to areas that currently aren't served.
0: Right. As far as the access portion of it, also, we've had folks waiting 15 to 20 years to have access to public water. They want the public water, but the town or the local government will not extend the water lines to them for some reason or another. So we've come up with a policy where they could charge those folks an outside water rate that's higher than the folks that are in town. And that's one solution where some of them have come around and are embracing that so that they can offer the folks that are outside of the town limits, but still can have access to the water.
3: Hope, is South Carolina one of the states that you all work in?
0: Yes. South Carolina is one of the states that we work in.
3: Because we encountered a community doing some work with the South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control in Rock Hill, South Carolina that had. And in fact, you talked about it at the presentation you gave at the meeting we spoke at together in November. That's been a, a really difficult situation. How do you get infrastructure to communities that for decades have been trying to get onto municipal water supplies?
0: Mostly, we work closely with the USDA office to obtain grants, mostly grants, because the community cannot sustain any loans, so that we can put in the infrastructure to get them connected to the public water system. That's our biggest source, the, the USDA and the SRF, getting funding through that source. But the problem that we have, the most of the governments don't want to take up any more loans or debts. So that's why we go to the grant system. And
4: that's a real challenge because, as you guys, I'm sure, are aware, the amount of grant money that is available nationwide continues to shrink. In fact, they don't even like to use the word grant anymore as much as they begin to talk about principal forgiveness. So it's very difficult. And if a community, if it's not, for example, a critical health need, then they might not rise to the top of the list of recipients Yes, it would be good if they had from a capacity issue, but because the limited grant funds are so competitive that the ones that take priority are ones that have actual critical health needs as opposed to capacity needs.
0: And that's one of the routes we take is usually we have to make it a health issue to even get them interested in those communities that don't have access. That's one of the routes that we take.
3: So you've already begun to talk about what our next question is, which is, on a national level, what are the obstacles to addressing this problem and what's needed to fix it? And one of the things you've addressed already is the lack of grants and federal resources. What are some of the other obstacles that get in the way of being able to get communities what they need?
0: They really need to look at pre-development. That's a big issue. There's no planning for the future. There's, Andy mentioned, the full cost service rates. And what that would actually mean, the benefit from that, is that it would actually let the users know how much water they are using. And then that would help them to conserve their water usage if they were actually being charged what it costs to service them. Another thing that we see that we've mentioned before was communities don't want to get into debt or take on any more debt, but however, they do not want to raise rates. That's one of the things that we see consistently throughout the communities we service that they don't want to raise rates and that it's because it's more political in nature. We were even did a study that showed that if all the utilities raise to raise $100 per customer, which is only $8.34 a month. That it could eventually fund their infrastructure needs. But just getting them to raise the rates is an issue. And small systems do not want to give up control. They don't want to regionalize. And because people are leaving, as Andy stated before, in the community, they cannot support and sustain that water system. So it makes more sense and better sense to operate on a regional level.
3: Well, we still have tribal communities also in the Mid Atlantic region and the Southeast region. How are they bearing up under this circumstance of water infrastructure or lack
4: thereof? Oh, it's, it's very difficult. I've had the good fortune to do some water operator training for tribal operators. And it's a challenging situation because they don't necessarily, why they are technically regulated by EPA or the primacy age, it just depends upon where they're located they aren't necessarily beholden to acceptable accounting principles, generally accepted accounting principles and things like that. And so there's really not as much of an accounting of how funds that they do receive are spent. I've been on some reservations where they, not here in Virginia, but in Wyoming and Montana and North Dakota, South Dakota, where some of the infrastructure needs and their treatment plants and things like that are really lacking in materials, and they don't have enough staff. It seems like control rests with just a very few people within the leadership structure of the tribes, and I'm not being critical of that. This is just the reality of the situation, so it's a very difficult situation to try to address just because of the fact that there's not a lot of accountability outside of the tribes.
0: Our cab network, as a whole, we still work closely with a few Indian tribes here in our region. Most of that is concentrated in South Carolina, the PD Indian Tribe, and a few other councils that we work with. However. Even getting them to work together is a struggle, so we have to spend time providing technical assistance and training to each tribe separately instead of having our costs not to be so substantial by having them all in the same room because we can't get them all there. But it is very difficult and, and they lack the resources as well because they maintain and keep their own separate water system outside of what we know as a traditional water supply.
2: So. How can people learn more about the great work that you're doing and how can they support the work that you're doing at CERCAP?
0: Well, you can go to our website at www.surcap.org. We have a program that we're implementing, and we introduced it to the Water Summit at the White House. We had a meeting there last week about our Day Without Indoor Plumbing campaign that would bring awareness and knowledge about the, well, I don't want to call it a water crisis, but we want to bring awareness about water issues and water quality in light of what happened to Flint. We also work with universities and colleges to bring volunteers to come in to work with our water and wastewater systems. And that's another thing that we do, so just getting that education out. And to contact your local and national legislatures just to let them know how important not only our work is, but how important water quality is and having access to water. If they don't hear from us and know the importance and how we feel, then usually no action or no momentum is taken up with that. And then the last thing is if we have a water is life luncheon every year, it's usually in April. This year is April the twentieth, twenty sixteen, which we discuss water quality issues and have training classes on access and accountability to the water supply.
2: So can you spell out your website again for folks?
0: Sure. It's www.s S as in Sam, E as in Elephant, R as in Rain, C as in Cat, A as in Apple, P as in Paul dot org. SirCap dot org.
2: Great. So, CERCAP is part of a larger network. Can you share a little bit of information about the larger network?
0: CERCAP is a part of the National RCAP Network. There are six RCAPs in the country covering different regions, and CERCAP is a part of the Southeast region. We cover seven states, but on the national front, we all join forces together to address water crisis policies. We address policies on access to water, and we also address policies on regionalization for water systems to conserve water and rates for the small systems. And I would like for Andy to speak to how we also on a national level speak to providing the technical assistance.
4: We are invited to participate in some of the discussions like we have members on the National Drinking Water Advisory Committee. So we get to be a part of the stakeholder group that looks at policy decisions and Potential regulatory issues. From a technical assistance standpoint, we have a lot of expertise all over the country. I'm, I'm fortunate to serve on what we call our technical resources team, that is sort of a go-to group among the technical assistance providers. That if we do run into an issue that maybe, you know, like in Virginia, we don't have a lot of problems with arsenic, for example, but. Out west, there's a greater problem with arsenic and water. So, we can pool our resources and our knowledge to really come together and help communities anywhere in the country for that matter.
2: And so, does the larger RCAP network have its own website? Sure. The National
0: RCAP's website is www.rcap.org. And on that website, there are great resources and publications to help water systems in need of any resource development. And they also have a link to all six RCAPs.
2: Great. So one last question for both of you. On a personal level, why is this work important to you?
0: For me, I'm an advocate for those folks that don't have a voice. Most of them don't have the means or the political strength to go out and advocate for what they need. And I feel as though I've been put in a position to speak for them if I can. So it's more a personal goodwill benefit for me to help those without a voice.
4: For me, it's it's something similar, I guess. I've been involved in water on the utility side and then also as a trainer and technical assistance provider for a long time. But until I came to SURCAP about a year ago, I never really had the kind of impact that I feel like we can now. and, and Maybe, just yes, me personally, but I mean as a member of this team of people that are able to provide relief and assistance, I'll never forget the feeling that I got the first time I helped the community get a technical assistance grant that took care of a critical health issue with related to their water system. It was as if I was some sort of savior or something, and I I really couldn't help them see that I was just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time to help them, but they're so grateful for anything that we do for them, and it's incredibly rewarding.
3: Thank you both for those really poignant answers. So, our next and last three questions are a lightning round series of questions. So, we're going to ask you a question and we want to give you to give us a quick answer. To the first thing that pops in your head. First one is if you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be?
0: Required
4: board training,
0: raise rates.
2: Wow, that was succinct. What one action could our listeners, you know, the average citizen take? to help build a more equitable and sustainable future.
0: What, what action could they take is get engaged.
4: And they could do that in a number of fronts by volunteering, but I'm not trying to be a political person necessarily, but we've come to understand just how important it is for legislators to hear from everyday people to say, this is really important to us, and, and we need you guys to keep it going.
3: And then finally, if you're successful in the work that you're doing, What would the world look like 30 years from now?
0: Increase access to water by 30%. People
4: getting along. Thank you both. Thank you very much.
3: Can't thank you enough for what you're doing in the communities that you're working with. And thank you all for listening. And we look forward to seeing you all again on the next episode of Infinite Earth Radio.
1: Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by SCIO in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about SCIO, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at InfiniteEarthRadio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio, and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.